The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants based on their personal and or professional experience with grief and bereavement. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Lighthouse Beacon podcast. My name is Rami Shami, and I'll be your host. A little background about our organization. We are located in Oakville, Ontario, Canada, but we provide services to the Greater Toronto, Ontario. We offer facilitated grief peer support groups to help children, teens, and their families through the grieving journey following a death in their family. Our groups are ongoing and open-ended, which offers each family member an opportunity to participate in their own way. We launched these podcasts in an effort to create a greater awareness, not only to children's grief support, but especially the diversity within children's grief. But before we begin today, I feel it's important that we share a land acknowledgement. My parents are immigrants. My father was a refugee. My mother is uh, an immigrant from Lebanon. And they settled on this land without really recognizing and becoming aware of the trauma, harm, and genocide that has been incurred by Indigenous peoples as a result of colonialism and settlement. I acknowledge the land that I'm standing on today. It's a traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nation, Inuit, and Métis peoples. I also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit and the Williams Treaty signed with multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. And what a privilege it is today to be joined by these three individuals from a wonderfully progressive and a community-focused organization, which is Indus Community Services. Joining me today are Raman Hasra, Pritika Moran, and Jasneet Gruwal. Raman is a project director of family services at Indus Community Services. She has eight years of experience in counseling, supervision, management, and program evaluation in the community setting. She's a registered social worker, and her practice is focused on developing and implementing trauma-informed, culturally responsive wraparound service models to meet the unique needs of our growing communities. Kritika is the Family Services Counselor and Community Engagement Coordinator at Indus. That's two large portfolios there, Kritika. She works with South Asian families referred by Peel's Children's Aid Society for the SATH program, which is a collaborative project with Indus and Peel CAS. She connects the families with culturally and linguistically responsive resources in the community. She is the project coordinator of the MASA project, which is Multicultural Access to Social Support Initiative, and works closely with young mothers with a special emphasis on newcomer families, expectant mothers, children in foster care, and assisting them with resources and connecting them with MASA mentors for ongoing support. And Jasneet, Jasneet is a youth counselor at Indus. She provides one-on-one confidential supportive counseling for youth between the ages of 12 to 24. Along with counseling, this support also provides risk management, crisis planning, and helps youth connect with resources available in the community. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm so honored and privileged to have you three with your, your knowledge, your experience, your passion, your backgrounds, your roles within the community supports that you provide. Maybe we'll begin by giving listeners uh, a background of who and what is in this community services. 
Thank you, Rami. First of all, thank you so much for giving us this wonderful opportunity. So Indus Community Services um, is a community-based organization. Um, Indus is a leader in providing culturally responsive services to newcomers, families, women, and seniors with a focus on um, building healthy and resilient communities. So the agency has served um, our communities for um, 35 years and it's supported by all three levels of government and its donors. Indus has six locations, three in Brampton, two in Mississauga, and one in Oakville. All our programs are culturally responsive and client-centered. That's quite a, quite a capacity of community service, isn't that, Raman? It is, I mean, yes. It's, it's grown. I mean, I know maybe 10, 15 years ago, I did a lot of work with the South Asian community and what have you. And I, there was an organization called Indian Rainbow back then. Yeah, in, is, India, India Rainbow. Yeah, that was our former name. And we yeah. changed it to Indus Community Services. And it's grown in so much, such a capacity, has it not? Yes, for sure. And what has catalyzed that growth? So as, as um, the name reflects, like Indus Community Services, many people, like when we were India Rainbow, many people would think that like we are only serving South Asian, Indian people mainly. But that's not true. So we are we serve everyone, but our expertise is in providing culturally responsive services. So if you look at the demographics, like Peel is the home to many, many newcomers, um, immigrants, refugees, and now international students. So, so our communities are changing. Um, so our community needs are changing. So our agency is changing, our programs are changing. Um, now our focus is on, you know, working together with other community partners because, you know, there's only so much that you can do when you are working in silos. So working together with community partners and other stakeholders to address the unique needs of our clients. Um, that's our main goal and focus. And, you know, Raman, you brought up something that is, is imperative within social services. Each organization can only do so much. We can't be all things to all people, nor should we. And yeah. I mean, that's that's why, you know, we're excited about a collaboration with you folks at Indus is so that we can have a greater capacity of of support, you know, in yeah. that regard. And speaking to that, can you uh, or uh, anyone speak to the demographics of peoples that you find that you're serving? This is Kritika. So I primarily work with the families referred by Peel Children Aid Society. So I work with the South Asian families and helping them with the resources uh, that is culturally and linguistically appropriate. And you feel more comfortable expressing your emotions and thoughts in your, in your first language. It can be Punjabi, Hindi, Urdu, Tamil. So I serve the families in these languages. So yeah, and... Uh, Jasneet can probably go ahead and explain her role uh, while she's working with the youth. Hi, so this is just me. So like you've already mentioned, I do work with youth between the ages of 12 and 24. Uh, we do predominantly serve the South Asian community, but all individuals are welcome for this counseling. But in general, this does have a very great wraparound support, uh, whether that's for the families, the parents, grandparents, the youth. Uh, we really do have that focus on a very holistic way of serving the community. Thank you. Thank you, Jasneet. 
So when we talk about loss, I mean, my parents, you know, are immigrants and refugees, and they experienced a great deal of loss that was a result of war, right, and conflict and what have you. But they also experienced loss of livelihood, loss of land, loss of, in many ways, their families, their their comfort, their positionality within their communities and societies. Can you share with us what some of the experiences of loss that you have within your roles with the demographics of people that you serve? Yeah, I can go ahead first. So with youth, there is a huge experience of loss, especially uh, with the youth that I serve. A lot of the times they're in that transitional age, during which oftentimes there's a loss of stability, loss of relationships, even loss of identity and self. And especially with COVID recently, um, there's been a huge impact on the youth and a lot of the, the clients even I'm seeing, um, there's been an impact where even they're coming in and saying, I think COVID had this effect on me, or even the, the loss of having socialization has been a huge effect. Um, oftentimes with youth, uh, as I mentioned with relationships, I do find that there is that loss of friendship sometimes that creates um, a period of grief and mourning for my uh, clients. And oftentimes, there's all situations where youth have been separated from one parent uh, or sometimes separated from both and they're being supported by their grandparents. Um, in those situations, youth uh, do experience the up and down uh, battle of the way that they, they mourn and the way that they grieve. So, Jasmine, if we could just focus right there just for a minute. How do you feel those factors that you just mentioned affect a death-related loss? I mean, or how have you seen them and experienced them in your role? So, with youth, in terms of grieving the the loss of an individual, there seems to be that not only do they experience their grief, but they're experiencing the grief of individuals within their family. I think that young age is so uh, crucial for the way that they see themselves within a group setting that sometimes they take on more pain than they necessarily should. Um, so with grief, they start taking on this role of trying to provide for the family because they see that, oh, my parents are going through this or my grandparents are going through this. I need to step up. So not only dealing with their own grace, but they're handling that as well. Uh, another aspect of uh, youth and when they're dealing with the, the loss of an individual, they don't necessarily know how to, to grieve sometimes because a lot of the times that maybe they saw their parents grieving was through traditions and uh, some of the beliefs that they've held and carried on. And sometimes the youth don't uh, resonate with that. So they're left feeling a little bit lost in terms of how to mourn and how to go about essentially going through that process. Yeah, excellent point there, Jasmine. I, I even experienced that because my father is a, or was a minister of our religion, the Druze religion, and how he processed grief, how his rituals and customs that he had adopted and, and learned in you know coming here from the Middle East were not necessarily aligned with how I find myself grieving, how I've been taught or even learned how to grieve. And we have that, if I may say that, it's not complete, but an intergenerational disconnect, do we not? Absolutely, definitely. And like you mentioned, like sometimes we don't connect with the religious or cultural beliefs, and we try to find our own way of handling that grief. And especially with um, the way that the youth are more comfortable and open seeking counseling and support than maybe the, their parents might be or their grandparents might be. Um, that's been a, a new way of coping for them where they're, they're seeking out that help and that aid. 
Yeah, Jasneed. And, you know, my parents are telling me I shouldn't take my child, Zemra, to a funeral. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is, the, you know, completely contrary to what I actually mm-hmm. do. And there is mm-hmm. quite a bit of that disconnect intergenerationally. I think in many ways, mm-hmm. Southern Ontario, especially if not all of Canada, is very unique because of these intergenerational or multi-generational dwellings and homes. And what we're learning here, what we're taught here may be very different from second, third, fourth generation families. So it's very unique. And I would love to delve into it a little bit more and how you folks uh, provide that support. But if I can circle back to Raman and Kritika about some of the experiences of loss that you are supporting with the people that you provide care for. Yeah, so um, as you know, we work with um, newcomers and refugees and working with them actually um, is, is showing us that, you know, grief can intersect with multiple parts of people's identity. So the process of immigration is often associated with feelings of loss. Um, actually, I think there's a name for this specific type of grief, if um, I'm not wrong. I think it's called cultural bereavement. So we, we, we work with people who miss their homeland. I, I, I am an immigrant myself, so I can relate to uh, that feeling. You know how you miss your old way of life, your family, friends, and you miss your language, you know, you miss your agency. And and these feelings of loss, I think when they intersect with your um, circumstances and struggles that you experience as a, as a newcomer um, during your settlement period, uh, that's a lot. And, and, and we have seen people experience a profound sense of grief and and people respond differently to loss, as as you mentioned and just need also said, like you know, then intergenerational peace comes in, right? How our our elders or parents respond to grief, how do they cope versus how we or our children cope? It's that's different, and it does impact like you know um, our emotional, mental, and physical well-being, not just our emotional and physical well-being, but also I think our other relationships, right? The, the, it does impact, you know, um, our perspective, the way we see things. Raman, you spoke to a few things. You spoke to how the experience of loss of being an immigrant or refugee can exacerbate, you know, uh, an experience of loss here, a death-related loss. But you also said about how it impacts relationships. Can you expand on that, how it impacts relationships? Yeah, so for example, um, so Kritika's uh, program, for example, like she uh, works with many newcomer parents and single moms, international students. And sometimes, you know, it's not easy when you are on your own. Um, You don't have any familiar social support circle around you. Um, You're new to the country and you are dealing with loss. It can be uh, death-related loss, or it can be it can be related to you know um, your um, immigration process, as I mentioned earlier. So, so if you're not getting the support that you need during your grieving phase, uh, you are not able to you know um, take care of yourself and your children, because we have seen many moms struggle, you know, because they they are not able to. Um, take care of their young children because they themselves need support. And uh, so the relationships 
for example. So, and sometimes people don't understand. Sometimes we, you know, um, we fail to um, see like why this person is struggling. Like, oh, she's not a good mom. She's not a good wife because she's not taking care of her family the way she's supposed to. But sometimes we forget that, you know, this person needs support. That's why um, her uh, well-being and her relationships are um, being impacted. And, and many times, you know, um, CS gets involved. Because if you're a young mom, you're grieving, and, and you are not able to, you know, support yourself and your child, sometimes you're labeled like as you're not, a, like you're not good enough to take care of your baby. So CS get, gets involved and then things become complicated. And I think Ritika can speak more to this because she works directly with, uh, with clients. Yeah, no doubt, Raman. Uh, thank you so much. And when you say, and we'll definitely transition to critic, when you say CAS gets involved, so if you have somebody who English is not their first language, yeah. they may have immigrated and they may be, or refugees, and then all of a sudden they have these experiences of loss and they may have a death-related experience of loss. And yeah. then you have this quote-unquote foreign organization that comes in, CAS, um, yeah. to to take over in the, you know, perceived well-being of the child, that must be yeah. traumatizing in many ways. It is. And, uh, but the, the good thing is um, that like we are seeing a shift in, in, in many children's age societies, you know, approach or practice. So they are now um, recognizing that, you know, there is a gap because back home for many newcomers, uh, individuals, like there's no concept of child protection. So for them, it's really difficult to understand, like, why, like, why CS is involved, um, because they don't understand, right? So that's why our partnership with Peel Children's Aid and Halton Children's Aid is doing wonders, because our cultural facilitators, like Kritika, and we have other cultural facilitators, they try to bridge the gap between uh, these individuals and, and children's aid societies and because uh, they are able to make a difference because they are able to provide support in, in these individuals' first language. They understand their culture. They, they can relate to their experiences. So, and and that, that makes a big difference. Thank you for all that, Raman. Okay, Kritika, can we hear some of your perspective, especially since you've been referenced by both the Jasnit and Raman with the wonderful work you do? What are your thoughts about what has already been shared? Yeah, so I would like to add on a few pointers to um, what Raman and Jasnit previously mentioned. So anxiety, depression, stress, school or work-related issues, it could be trauma, relationship issues, uh, substance use and other mental health issues um, that are often internalized in our uh, South Asian culture. So it can be really hard to reach out for therapy due to the fear of being judged and a worry that this could bring shame to your family. And uh, if your identity is somehow disclosed, um, there is a feeling of uncertainty regarding like what could happen next. So there is a lot of like stigma around mental health. And a lot of people do not share their emotions freely uh, just because of the reason that they would be judged. 
and working with uh, children in society and the south asian families together like how raman mentioned i'm trying to bridge the gap between the families and the children in society because it is very overwhelming for the families to be introduced to an agency that to a child protection agency or uh, which they are not which they have not experienced in the past in their um, own home country so it can be really hard in terms of even expressing your emotions so mental health is definitely a big factor it's a big stigma in our south asian culture and, and it could also lead to you know uh, second generation canadians to not pursue uh, therapy because there is a stigma around it so um i would like to say that there isn't one size that fits all approach and everybody experiences different emotions and they have a different way to cope up with it and experiences may differ based on their unique experiences as well as their own uh, religious and spiritual cultural ethnic uh, family dynamics and so on and so forth so it's not just one thing right yes critica thank you for that uh, just some clarification for my ask you when you say south asian community who are you speaking of the so south asian community i i would say that whether it's from pakistan india like i primarily work with families who are from these countries so yeah and when you're speaking of cs and the languages and you know these these programs are not necessarily found in south asia and they're they're here and what are some of your experiences that exacerbate that mental health you spoke to some of them but what actually happens what do you see what are some of the the storylines that you bear witness to that give this life so that we can actually relate uh, in that regard so there are many kind of experiences uh, that my clients go through so i would like to share um, two of those experiences so i recently worked with a family who lost their child um, the same month they gave birth to so it was very hard for them to kind of um, speak about this openly and have that safe space and a comfortable space to seek help and this was a family who spoke in tamil tamil language and i speak the same language so it was very easy for me to kind of have that conversation with them and trust me while talking to the family i had goosebumps because you know it's a very different feeling in terms of losing a person i mean losing a physical presence of a person and that to losing a child just after a few days you gave birth to so i'm sure nobody can imagine the pain they went through the trauma they went through so having that language support having that um, cultural understanding having that empathy towards that cultural understanding um, meant a lot to the family and they were pretty open to discuss more about the law and describe it in detail and what kind of supports um, they would like to have in place because we all strongly feel working with families in different capacities that cultural understanding is a very important piece when it comes to grief whether it's death related or whether it's non death related and uh, the other family that i was uh, working with the child was 7 months old and um, there were some injuries and as you know chilmi society police and other agencies got involved and um, the child um, was in the foster care has was brought into foster care and uh, 
talking to the family who are new immigrants so they are not aware of their child protection system as such and they were not even sure like why this is happening and um, they were explaining their part of the story of uh, whether there is something that happened from their side unintentionally and you know also trying to understand it from the children in society's uh, perspective in terms of child protection concerns and navigating the resources for them because at the end of the day the families that you work with even if there is a death related or non death related loss they need somebody who can listen to their concerns who can listen to their worries and that's what my role was uh, in terms of handling uh, the situation with the family uh, though the situation has got better now with time but still having that support having that linguistically and culturally appropriate support help the family feel secure and they felt that there is somebody from their own community to help them find these resources and there are many more because worked with more than 100 more 100 plus families so it's not just one or two cases but uh, just to highlight few of them uh, these are the ones thank you so much kritika you've brought so much to my at least my awareness i never thought about the role peel children's aid society would play in the experience of loss and grief and immigration refugee that was my ignorance that's my you know my my lack of awareness of that so thank you for sharing that with us and it makes a lot of sense to me we've talked about this a lot at lighthouse this whole linguistically piece the language and what have you but may i ask you to expand or to clarify what you mean by culturally appropriate especially jasnet spoke to you know the intergenerational piece can you exp- explain a little bit more the culturally appropriate what does that mean especially with respect to some of the families you've served ramen do you have any thoughts on this uh yes rami i would like to say that you know you don't have to be from the same community and culture um to provide culturally responsive support and services it's a bonus right if you are uh, if you are able to speak the language or if you belong to that culture but even like if you look at the south asian community there are thousands of sub cultures right hundreds of languages that people speak even within india um north indian culture is totally different than south indian culture so you know um i identify myself as a south asian um woman but still like i am an outsider to all these other cultures i think it's important for us as service providers to understand that you know you can never be an expert when it comes to cultural sensitivity all you can do or need is um that humility and awareness that you know you don't know everything and you are willing to listen and you are willing to learn right it's not your clients or family's responsibility to teach you about their culture it's it's your responsibility to to get that education and um uh, i think uh, that that's um, another that th- there's a misconception that many people feel that oh like if you are from india you can work with any indian person um we keep getting referrals from you know other community partners oh yes um you can work really well with this client because they are from india but like okay i can only speak hindi and punjabi 
but there are hundreds of languages that people speak in in India. And if there is a Tamil or Telugu speaking family, I have no clue like what they're saying or how, like about their culture. So I think again that that cultural um, humility and and awareness. I think that that is the key when it comes to uh, providing um, culturally responsive services and support to um, individuals and families. Yeah, thank you for that, Ram. And I appreciate the advocacy for culture humility to learn from people how they because there's a there's an individuality to it, right? And yeah. and I can very much appreciate the diversity with India. I lived in India primarily in Karnataka, down in the mm-hmm. south, for over a year, and I spoke okay. a bit of Malayalam. So it was oh, wow, wow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, But I can appreciate the diversity because when I traveled to the north, I traveled to the east, I traveled down into Kerala, it was so diverse. And I, mm-hmm. I appreciate, especially in Canada, we kind of lump people in, well, maybe just this cultural competence piece. We lump people all into this category. You are from India, right? Yeah. Which is very, very diverse in, in that mm-hmm. regard. And then when somebody's experienced a death-related loss, we yeah. assume they all do the same sort of practices and, exactly. and ways and what have you. And, and I can only imagine from you folks how diverse the experiences of loss and grief are. If you add even the immigration, the intergenerational and the refugee component onto it. So Jasneet, do you have, thank you very much for that, Raman. Uh, we're very much on the same page in that regard. <laughs> Jasneet, do you have any other comments you'd like to speak to this from your role and your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with the culture piece, I definitely agree even with the, the youth. There's times when I, there, I can't say that I do know as much about their culture. And it's really important to have like that, humility to be like oh like that's really lovely like I didn't know that and have that just because I am from a South Asian community as well doesn't mean that I would have access to all the information that there is and I agree it is so diverse even India on its own and that's only one part of the South Asian community as a country is so diverse and then you you add in the other countries and there's so many different cultures and they're all beautiful and sometimes they're similar and sometimes they're different but having that culture humility has been very helpful I also find sometimes uh, a nice way to create that inclusivity can just be something as simple as if a client is talking about being separated from a parent, I might ask, what name did you use for your parent? Like sometimes, for example, I call my dad, Dada, and one of my uh, cousins calls their parent like Papa or uh, Papa. And so sometimes it's nice to just have somebody say that and then they're able to use that term. Sometimes clients will come in using... Uh, more Western terms of being like my my father, my mother, or their uncles and aunts. And when they realize that this is a space that they can use terms uh, that are more culturally sensitive, I I find they get more comfortable. I I find that they have that moment of where they're like, oh, okay, and they start expressing a bit more comfortably. So just creating that space where it's not only do you have that humility that you might not know a lot about the different cultures, but also creating that inclusivity, I suppose. Oh, brilliant, Jasneet. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Like my my daughter, she's born and raised here, second, I think third generation or whatever. And she calls my mother and father, she and sitto. And people ask, what what is that? And, you know, how do you frame that? I think it's really important, even though she doesn't speak much Arabic at all. I think it's really important what you just made the point on is how we address others, how we address the person that has died, how we ex- address you know, the people that are related to us. Yeah, that's, and that can create a different sense of inclusivity. No doubt, no mm-hmm. doubt. 
If we can circle a little bit back, thank you, ladies. I mean, we haven't even talked about, you know, gender and pronouns and all that because that all adds into it and sexual orientation, that all adds into how a person expresses themselves individually in our midst. Now, but if we can circle back to Kritika, you work as a project coordinator for Multicultural Access to Social Support Initiative, correct? Yeah, the master program. That's the, right. Can you speak a little bit more about that program? That sounds fascinating and how it interfaces with the experiences of loss, whether they're death-related or not. Absolutely, Ramis. So I work for the MASI project. Uh, it's Multicultural Access to Social Support Initiative. So I work with uh, young mothers, uh, expected mothers, um, young immigrant families, people who do not have family here in Canada, who are away from friends and family overall. So a lot of families that I work with, uh, especially if I focus on young mothers, most of them have children out of wedlock, right? So there could be many factors due to which uh, they do not have a relationship with their partner. So there is a sense of loss in those terms too. Like when we talk about uh, relationships, they are handling everything by themselves individually, not having any family support, not having any um, social support. And um, you kind of feel that hopelessness while taking care of everything all by yourself. So with Masi, we have mentors. So we have nine mentors who speak in different um, South Asian languages. So we match them with these mentors so that they can provide them with supportive uh, counseling and just be there for them, just to talk to them. Because at the end of the day, Rami, you just need somebody to talk to, right? And when you're in a lonely space, when you're in a completely new country where everything is new to you, you're still getting adjusted to the environment, you're still adapting to the environment. These mentors kind of help these mentees to find resources um, that they need and also just talk to them uh, like a friend, and being there for them. So it's not just specific to the work timing, like how we can serve the clients. They can talk to the clients even on a weekend after office hours. And there is a flexibility even in terms of like talking to them on WhatsApp, video call, meeting them in person, going out to a park or a library. So it's like building their social connection. And this program has been very successful, um, especially in our uh, South Asian community because a lot of people are coming out and talking about it. And even the young mothers or young immigrants, they feel comfortable to kind of um, discuss about their situation and seek help. So, yeah. That's amazing. That sounds like a, you know, hopefully this is a sensitive term. Sounds like a bridge, right? Between, you know, one capacity of support and another capacity of support that's somewhat informal. Can you speak to how these mentors are educated, trained, recruited, supported? Yeah, absolutely. So we do uh, have training. So once they are hired, they go through an intensive training in terms of what's their role as a mentor and how they can support the mentees. And uh, after that's done, we match the clients according to, you know, we always make sure that we see the individual's background, the language that they speak, their concerns, and if it is something which relates to the mentor, uh, for example, I recently worked with a family where um, it was a new immigrant family who just came here in February 2023. So they're very new. So they're not aware of the resources. They're not quite sure where to start. So 
the person i was working with uh, she's from a banking uh, background and by chance there is a mentor who is also from a banking background so i matched her with um, this client and it was so helpful in terms of sharing tips in t- in terms of sharing um uh what kind of certification she's supposed to do uh what are the next steps to follow so somebody as a guiding factor i would say and somebody to talk freely and somebody to kind of um have a safe space to discuss about anything related to profession or even in terms of language because both mentor and the mentee they speak in telugu so it's quite comfortable for both of them to have a conversation even like friends and if we focus it a little bit on grief and loss mm-hmm. are they are they how do they how do they support that how they cuz you know i can't imagine somebody coming as an immigrant or a refugee i can't imagine my parents all of you know looking it up on the internet grief support because they have had a death in the family they've had a you yeah. know some kind of death related loss looking it up and saying oh here's this organization provides grief support and that organization <laughs> doesn't look like them doesn't talk like them doesn't do anything that they can relate to and all of a sudden yes they're going to step into that grief support it's not it's going to be very rare that that happens so it's very important for organizations like yourselves to exist and if i may say so have these collaborations with other grief based organizations now these mentors and and some of the work you do can you speak to it from a perspective of a death related loss do they provide support of that of that do they know who to gain referrals to can you can you talk a little bit more about that critica so not have really experienced death related loss recently working with uh, families but um, we definitely talk about it to our mentors we have conversations around death so that they are prepared for it in terms of having a conversation which is which is very sensitive in nature right so while having conversation with clients we don't we don't want the mentors to uh, re traumatize them by saying something but we do give them uh knowledge and um, we do talk about this we have conversations around this and um we try to consider some of the following questions like um what emotions and behaviors are normal grief responses within a person's own culture what special days or dates will be significant for a bereft family who should attend mourning ceremonies and uh, how is it different in different cultures um what what is their understanding about um death in their own culture so this is a very vast topic i would say so we try to have conversations around it depending upon uh, different situations and maybe raman and jasneed if you would like to add to it well kritika just to summarize that sounds a lot like a culturally humble approach that raman was speaking to because you can have somebody come in i mean from the diversity of india and pakistan and bengal and, and mm-hmm. sri lanka and what have you but then you could have their own unique experiences right their own unique experiences of traumatization their situation whether it's a a relationship with cas whether it's you know a, a, an expectant mother or however so it mm-hmm. it becomes very individual raman just need anything else you can you can speak to in that regard Yeah, I just like something to add on as well. Um when it comes to the grief within like the cultures, sometimes even like we mentioned, I think we briefly touched on earlier was the interpersonal relationships and like how you're mentioning it there is not only the cultural aspect, but families as individuals are very di- different and diverse and individual situations come up that need to be handled differently, of course. So when it comes to the interpersonal piece within a family, oftentimes 
the way maybe one individual is grieving has a huge effect on on the relationships that they have in that family. And especially, um, specifically in the South Asian community, community is a really big piece, that piece of culture, that piece of togetherness, that you're not an individual but part of a community versus that Western view, even um, with uh, second-generation youth, oftentimes, this is a bit of a tangent, but oftentimes they're stuck between two cultures. They're stuck between this desire to fit in with the culture of their parents, but then also this desire to fit in to the culture of the, the Western world they live in. So that starts playing a role within the grieving process as well. The way that grief is handled here can be very different um, and the way that grief is handled by their parents. But that starts playing a part in their relationship with their, their family during the grief situations. To give a bit of a more uh, personal example, my family lost my grandmother recently and she, she lived with us. She was one of uh, my siblings and I's primary caregivers. Um, so it was a huge loss in the family. And, and the way that the children of the family took that grieving was so drastically different from the way that my parents grieved. And for example, uh, the day she passed away, my siblings and my cousins, we were having conversations that were kind of funny. <laughs> and there were situations where we were bringing up stories about her that were a, a bit more comedic. And so we were laughing, especially the younger ones, and kind of relieving that, that grieving process where they would go in and out of those grief pools. But the adults within my family whose um, cultural perspective on that, of that grieving process was to sit in that grief in those initial moments to really mourn, especially with the love of the elderly women in my culture, um, the way that they grieve is to really to, to cry it out in that moment, to really as, as um, expressively as possible. It's even considered wailing sometimes, and that's their process. So seeing the contrast between them doing that and the children laughing, my parents even came up to us and were like, what was wrong with you? You shouldn't have been doing that. Mm. So there is, there's a lot of that cultural piece, that shift is really hard for, I think, um, even the, the second generation youth, because they want to be there. They want to grieve in the same way to, to see how it works. But sometimes that just doesn't resonate. Yeah, well said, Jasney. Well said. Welcome to my world. I mean, I'm not a youth, but I'm, I'm second generation. And the way I process grief and teach my child to engage and process grief is very different from my parents. And, and then we haven't even spoken to the interracial piece. You know, a, a good friend of mine who is Tamil and um, he had a death in his family, a sibling, mm. and she had married somebody Catholic, I believe Catholic or white, somebody white. And how that all plays out when it comes to their children and the funeral and any ritual or ceremony is very, you have the intergenerational piece. And then you have on top of that, not on top of that, but integrated in that is this interracial or interfaith, right? Absolutely, Which yeah. I think changes. Yeah. That's why I think, and if I may, Jasneed, I'm not sure because, you know, in, in North America, we have such an incredible diversity when it comes to immigration and what have you. I'm not sure if we can even use the term, we can, I mean, obviously, but how relevant the term Western is anymore, because mm. there is such diversity from other parts of the world here, almost like, especially Southern Ontario, almost like nowhere else in the world do we have this potpourri of, of people. So the influences, mm -hmm. and then if you add social media on top of that, the influences become so incredibly vast. And that comes back to needing to receive from the people that we are providing support for how they individually 
process grief, think about it, feel about it, including all the influences they have. Am I on the same page as you folks, or how do you feel about that? Absolutely. As just Neat mentioned, like we have also seen um, many young people who experience, you know, um, the loss of their cultural identity and, and the family history, and and they feel like, you know, shame. Like there, there's a feeling of shame about, like, you know, not knowing more about like your culture and history. For example, like, okay, like what to to do or what not to do when when your mm-hmm. family is grieving, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and that can lead to like a you know another um, form of mental distress. So, so young people like have have told us that that they experience this um, grief in in waves, uh, feeling it more in in certain times. Like for example, when you um, are grieving, like okay, if there's a, I have seen that uh, because we work with youth and parents, and 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 this cultural bereavement piece is it's huge and and it's important for us to talk about this experience more because sometimes mm-hmm. people feel that you know whatever we are um, experiencing it's um, it can't be grief because we didn't lose what mm-hmm. we perhaps might typically believe to be a loss right such as a death so mm-hmm. so it's important for us to um, remember that there are different types of losses that one can experience and whatever you're experiencing, if if you think it's a loss to you, it's valid. So I think um, you know, like when when it's important for us to name our grief, and and then it becomes easier for us to you know um, talk about how we feel. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Ram. And thank you for that. Can we, and Jasnate, if you can weigh in in this, can we talk a little bit about that shame piece, especially from the intergenerational uh, perspective when it comes to loss? Absolutely, yeah. I was nodding along so aggressively when Ramanos mentioned the shame piece because <laughs> it resonates so much with me. There is there is this uh, sense of shame when you when you don't know, and there's so many things. I think um, even my parents were assimilating into the culture here. I think uh, there was a process of letting go some pieces of culture, and sometimes the, the meaning of certain things that even my parents do got left behind. And I feel like there's so many things I'm missing in that regard. And I, and I think a lot of youth resonate with that as well, is that, uh, for example, um, during grieving, in my culture, you're not supposed to uh, cook if somebody in your family passes away. That's something I never knew the meaning of. I had no idea what that meant uh, or why. And so my siblings and I were like, that's so, so strange. Like, we're not going to follow that. But then uh, recently, actually, uh, Robin told me what that meant, and it, it's, it's that the culture, like your community is meant to kind of weigh in and help you out and they'll do the cooking for you, give you space to grieve, give you that time to to take on a different kind of responsibility, which is the morning. And and there is that sense of, I was like, oh, I, I didn't know that. And I thought I was pretty aware of my culture. And I was like, oh, I, I didn't know that. And it really reminds me that there's so many things that I feel like I won't be able to pass on to my children. And there is that shame. I'm like, I, I, I won't be able to carry on that legacy that my parents definitely want me to. And I think a lot of, a lot of you feel that. I have one, a few clients who have spoken to me, actually. Uh, they used to live in a different country, and they moved here. And they're talking about how they notice themselves changing the way they, they think and they do things. And then they're finding that it's very different from the way that their parents maybe want them to grow up. 
and they're they're finding a lot of guilt there too. It's not just shame, but guilt that you're leaving this behind. You speak in my language, Jasmine, and it's not necessarily the same dialect, but I I can very much relate. Although we have very different age demographics between myself and yourself, I can very much relate to what you're saying in terms of what I teach my child, what I want her to know. And then on top of that, you know, this is where the I feel cultural competence fails is that just because a certain people's, you know, practices ritual and such as this, and then intergenerational may not be practicing it as such, they may want to learn it. And then when they learn it, they may practice it. But, you know, at the time of an experience of loss, it may may not be applicable or it may, it may. That's why from a culturally humble approach, it's all what's happening here in the present moment at the time of the death-related loss. Jasnit, you mentioned this idea of community in the singular sense. And given the incredible diversity of India, and given the incredible diversity of immigrating to Canada, can we really classify it as a singular community, or is it communities within communities? I have to agree, yeah. Communities within communities feels right. And even like, I think we briefly mentioned, even having been part of, let's say, um, the LGBTQ plus community, like that is a community of its own. And then you have your cultural background, that's a community. Religious affiliation, that's a community. And then also, uh, like you mentioned, like even Canada, because it's so multicultural, you're part of you're part of maybe the culture that you come from, but then also part of this new kind of culture that's integrating so many different things. It really is just communities within communities. And then, as we mentioned earlier, the the experiences of an individual family that becomes a sense of community as well. Especially uh, South Asian communities, we're we're big families, and that's its own culture. It's it's I agree. It's communities within communities. It's such a beautiful way of putting it. <laughs> It's just what I've learned, eh, Jasmine. I mean, or my experiences in in this work and in life in general is that we have our different segments of what we consider communities, and they intersect with one another. Because what's happened a lot in in grief support in Ontario, especially maybe not maybe in North America, is that we call it a grief community, or you are part of a grief community. I'm like, that's impossible to be part of a grief community if we all as Raman was spoken to, if we all grieve individually and uniquely, where we have these supports from different aspects of our lives, but it may not be one singular community that was the ideology or the perception that we had many moons ago, right? My dad talks about about, about that a lot. Your community, Mm -hmm. well, I have a hospice community, I have a rock climbing community, I have, you know, my friends, I have have my work community, so they intersect, right? So I'm not sure if we can really continue to use this singularity, which creates a false sense of inclusivity within that. if And then there's trauma, traumatization that we've experienced that can result us not feeling part of any sense of community, right? So yeah, I think it's an important issue. So I appreciate you agreeing with me on that, Jasni. Absolutely. And Kritika, if we could circle back around to this aspect of guilt when it comes to ritual, ceremony, things passed down from generations and as it applies to grief and grieving. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, this is a very valid question and I have a lot to talk about it. But I would like to start by saying like in our um, own South Asian culture, there is a common philosophy uh, to prioritize the needs of the family over the needs of the individual. And as a result, the second generation sometimes keep their own wishes, their goals, their hopes and dreams to themselves that they're not able to kind of uh, speak about it openly. 
it also brings up in terms of uh, the concept of acceptance and um, family's expectations and what to say what not to say there is an internal conflict that can become more complex with time if it is not addressed on time like um, earlier i spoke about the mental health aspect too so critica there's this you know you mentioned this aspect of guilt mm-hmm. and it can be guilt as a result of not carrying forward the teachings of our parents or grandparents the ritual yeah. the ceremony especially at times of death and loss right especially mm-hmm. at times of death related loss mm-hmm. can you speak a little bit more to that experience of guilt how it interfaces with those aspects yeah absolutely so i can probably um say it from the own experiences in terms of the families that i work with that are individuals who are um, who are having children out of wedlock right so they do have a struggle in terms of um, sharing this news with their family their own parents and extended family and there is guilt and shame associated to it so it's very challenging especially in our south asian culture um, um the kind of um, philosophies traditions cultural practices that we follow uh it's challenging to open up and discuss about living relationships talk about having a child out of wedlock so even though they are traditionally the family uh system like we, if we talk about parents and extended family members uh how we define family but being in a new country with uh, zero supports not being able to discuss about this because in our culture or in general like in a lot of cultures this is not considered normal or there is a stigma around um, having a child out of wedlock so having the support system in place which is culturally appropriate and you know being able to support the family and making them aware of what supports are available that plays a very huge role so the families that i work with and the individuals i work with when they are experiencing a similar situation these mentors help them navigate the situation and find supports in the community and the family now the the dynamic of a family or the the definition of a family changes to not just uh, their own family as a blood relation but also people who are there to support hear their worries and be there for them and help them find better spot i mean in their life yeah that makes a lot of sense kritika you know when we talk about ideology we talk about the definition of family when we talk about community however you define community expectations that you feel you belong to the stigmas continue to grow right for example you know i could very much relate to what you're saying we talk about stigma stigma i'm divorced and there's a lot of shame in my family because i'm divorced right and mm-hmm. yet in my kids class my 11 year old child in a grade 6 class 70 80% of the the children in there come from divorced families Yeah. And it's yeah. so interesting because she thinks it's nothing but for me and my family or my parents it's a great deal of shame. And so even when we talk about I really appreciate how you even characterized family because when we talk about family it's a lot of the times it's how we define family. I don't necessarily define family as bloodlines. I define family and the people that are close and meaningful to me who have Absolutely. who are not not blood related whatsoever, right? In that regard. Roman, any other points you'd like to make to that? Anything you'd reference with that? Yeah, hey, Roman, I'll just jump in on that. Mm-hmm. I love this conversation about uh family not necessarily being blood. Especially with the the youth I work with, there's this beautiful concept of like found family. More and more people are feeling that they're connecting with maybe friends, maybe 
uh, other mentors, maybe people who are guiding them in different ways and they're finding the sense of family amongst that. Even actually one foreign family that I found was really lovely was uh, Kripke and I uh, attended the Lighthouse Grief Training, which was a mm-hmm. lovely experience. And the other participants, um, we became a sort of family for the three days that we were training. And, and that was a family of its own, the, the kind of connections that we made through sharing our grief experiences. That created this, this special kind of bond. And similarly, people go through so many um, walks of life where they connect with different people based on different things and they create this a community within a community if we jump back to that. But definitely with the youth that I work with, it is a huge part of uh, their experience, the way they're navigating the world right now is creating that sense of found family. Because a lot of times when they're not resonating with something within their own family, they look towards their friends. They look towards their, their created mentors. They look towards these other individuals that have been supporting them in, in ways sometimes they find they're not being supported at home. I love that, Jesse. I've never heard of that term. I've heard of the term chosen family, right? But mm-hmm. I like that term found family. I'm going to borrow it yeah. and use it in my, <laughs> in, my, in my ranks. But you know, you bring up yeah. some very important points. Sometimes it's the experience that creates a sense of family. It's, it's what we share in that intimacy and safety of an environment that can, can create mm-hmm. relationships and bonds and intersectionality that we don't even have within our traditional families, right? And then the, the definition of a traditional family is really changing in what we accept as a traditional family, you know, single parents, same sex. There's a whole gamut of, uh, you know, even with people who experience homelessness, which is a lot of my work, they call it street family, right? So I think mm-hmm. it's important because that impacts the experience of, of loss. And I'm so uh, excited to hear that both you and Kritika came and attended the Lighthouse training because yeah. I feel it's that those sort of collaborations, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I suspect because you came, you agree to this. It's those sort of collaborations that we can grow capacity within referrals, within resources, and within grief support. No one organization can do it. I think Raman began us with that. No one organization can do it all. We have to collaborate. Right. Mm -hmm. So we'll take a little, you know, the the grief education and training, however, we've learned it and exercise it and practice it. We share it with you folks. You applied how you see it's appropriate within the context of the people you serve. And that's how we grow capacity of service. What are your thoughts on that? No, I'm glad that we are on the same page, Remy. I think, as I said earlier, like we need to work together, like we can't work in silos. Um, and, and this can be an opportunity for us to come together as community partners to mm-hmm. actually develop um, these wraparound culturally responsive programs. Because to be honest, there's not much funding <laughs> for, for these programs and services, right? So we need to be more creative, right? Whatever limited resources we have, how can we actually um, come together, work together to address the unique needs of, of our clients and, and their families? And also, I think working with clients, because I have also done um, frontline work, and I, I think our clients, they are very resilient, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I have seen people, um, like they, they, they let go of their practices and values that no longer serve them. Right, and I have seen people actually opening up and utilizing the the practices and and traditions for healing that that work for them. They just need that timely support, and people can heal. We can heal. We we just need to support each other. 
Couldn't agree more, Ram. And, and to create communities within communities, right, Jasneed? I mean, that's the whole aspect of it, mm-hmm. especially what you said, what people find healing for them, what works for them, right? Which might be different from the country they immigrated from, the family they identify with, the family they don't identify with anymore, the generation that they're, you know, clumped into. And that's how I find individual grief support has to be in that regard. I know a few years ago, five or six, seven years ago, we had Lighthouse for Grieving Children. Well, we're really looking at two paths. Do we provide all this culturally responsive support in our building, in our groups? Or do we collaborate with organizations so that they provide it for their demographics because they have the expertise and knowledge and relationships Mm -hmm. with those communities, within communities, within those peoples? And, you know, you folks being on the podcast today, coming and attending our training, the relationship and collaboration we built are the testimony to the latter. And I'm so excited to see where we can continue to develop this, if not model it for Mm -hmm. other organizations, especially within social services. Thank you so much. So folks, just before we end today, and I'm so appreciative of all that you shared, the knowledge, the insights, the expertise, the intimacy of it all. Anything else you'd like to share with us that you'd like the world to know? So when we attended, me and Justine, when we attended the Lighthouse training, uh, it was an amazing experience for us. The three-day training was just so amazing. We could learn so much uh, from everybody. But I would like to say something which just something which is important for everybody to know and we should all acknowledge that that all emotions are important whether it be happiness whether it be sadness all emotions are important and we should acknowledge that Uh, if we can laugh out loudly why can't we cry Mm. so that should be treated normally and we should acknowledge that and um, that's how we move forward thank you Kritika may I ask you where's that I mean I couldn't I absolutely agree with you you know, emotions are natural in terms of how, even when we're grieving, right there. And then if you even add a traumatizing experience that it can cause different affect dysregulations, but where's that coming for, for you? What is your experience in that, that you wanted to put that out there? So this is a philosophy that I've been following since I was very young. So initially it was from uh, the fact that my parents were both working and I was a single child. So I never had people around me to talk to and discuss about my issues. I was bullied in school, uh, but I didn't feel comfortable sharing it with my parents. There were um, other instances too, uh, which was very critical in nature. And I couldn't openly discuss with my family because of the stigma around mental health. And gradually, because this instinct inside me of being very motherly and caring and warm towards others, this gradually brought up certain questions in my mind, thinking about How do I address my own emotions? Like, do I do self-talk? Do I write a journal? Uh, Do I talk to my friends? What do I do? And that's how this thing came up. And eventually, when I started experiencing death in the family and even non-death-related loss, there has been many. It, It would take forever for me to describe all of them. But my experiences, my unique experiences kind of helped me find the solution and also acknowledge that if I can laugh out loud, why should I feel shy crying? Why should I feel shy, uh, you know, expressing my emotions, which might be um, positive or sometimes negative in nature, but I should be able to address it. So addressing your emotions is very important. And I would encourage everybody to not feel conscious about crying. It's okay. It's okay to feel 
low it's okay to feel depressed it's okay to cry yeah it's, 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 sorry, i i i agree with you critic 100% like our emotions are valid and it's okay to feel whatever you're feeling right sadness fear shame guilt you need to find the outlets to express your emotions and then you can find what works best for you right because as you said earlier um one size can't fit all right so whatever works for you go give it a try Well, thank you for that insight, uh, Kritika and Raman. If there, if there is a measure of inclusivity, I think it's to be heard, to be affirmed, to have the opportunity to share in your own autonomy and self-direction. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the most powerful healing measures when it comes to grieving, right? And the states of bereavement. So thank you for that. Anything else, Jasne? Do you have anything you want to add to that? Sure. Yeah. I think the only main thing that I would want to add to that because Kritika and Roman have put it so perfectly is that like when individuals are going through whether it be a tough time or whether it be a happy time the validation of those emotions is just so important and I think sometimes it is forgotten and so I I definitely agree. Well, thank you again folks. Thank you so much for all that you shared today for the time that you took for collaborating with the organization for coming to learn from us and us from you. Uh, I can't tell you how important that is when I'm sure you recognize when it comes to growing capacity of uh, of support. Thank you so much Rami. We are looking forward to working together and learning from each other. Thank you so much. For more information on Indus Community Services, please visit www.indus.cs.ca. That's i n d u s c s.ca and their social media channels. For more information about Lighthouse for Grieving Children, please visit us at www.lighthousegriefsupport.org or you could find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I'm Rami Shami and this has been the Lighthouse Beacon podcast.